morning. I love it that this is a hard crowd to quiet down. So many people here with so much energy and so many relationships. Um, my name is Rachel Krinsky. I'm the CEO of YWCA Madison, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the 2015-14th, that is hard to say, <laughs> YWCA Racial Justice Summit. Just a few words about the YWCA for some of you who may not know us well. YWCA's mission is eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, fairness, and dignity for all people. It is a humongous and audacious mission, and it's my favorite thing about the organization. Uh, we don't pretend that we're going to do it by ourselves or immediately, and that is why it's so important to us that you're all here this morning. Um, in Madison, the YWCA Madison articulates that mission in three major program areas housing programs, employment programs, and then direct social change programs in race and gender equity. And um, this obviously is one of the programs that we do to try to advance racial justice in our community. I want to welcome those of you who have been here year after year after year. Some of you have been here for as long as the summit has been around. And I want to welcome those of you who are new. Um, this summit is more than a day. It creates relationships and action and change and all kinds of sparks that carry on from year to year and carry each of us individually and together and as organizations and as a community into a future that we all envision. This year's summit is called From a Moment to a Movement. Um, that is a phrase that's been used a lot. Moment meaning the things that happen in this community and elsewhere where people get real excited about racial justice for a moment and then move on to some other issue. We are really working in this community, and I believe this, that many, many people, a broader group of people than ever before in this community are trying to move beyond a moment into a real movement towards equity in Madison and in Dane County. And for that reason, we're all gathered here today and tomorrow to see what we can do to continue to move that forward and really be effective um, so that this isn't just this summit itself is not just a moment, not just a day, not just two days, but is a catalyst for further action and progress. So again, thank you for joining us today and for joining us in the work to reach racial equity. Like last year, we want to begin with acknowledgments of the past year's work. Frankly, that was so much fun last year, we thought we should do it again. But it's impossible to talk about the state of racial justice over the past year without also acknowledging the national and local context. Since last year, the multiple killings of African-American men and women and trans women that have received new levels of attention due to videos and social media have caused a rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and much more public protests, mobilization, really massive protests, both locally and nationally. That's been very important to all the work that we're doing here and keeping the context in mind about the, some of the sobering events that have happened is part of what we're thinking about as we celebrate the motion forward that we have made. So as I read through a list, which is not a comprehensive list, but the list we put together, please rise if you are able when we talk about something that you were involved in. We are not just looking for the leaders of these things. We are looking for anyone who participated, shared ideas, came, made phone calls, any way that you touched these items. And once you've stood up, please stay standing. The other thing we're going to practice, because otherwise we'll be here all morning, is we cannot clap really for each thing. So we're going to practice the one clap. I believe we did this last year. So just for practice, I'll read a thing. It'll be really awesome, and we'll all clap once like this. Great. Okay, so since the 2014 Racial Justice Summit, United Way convened a policing work group to better develop ways to, to do policing in our community. The Step Up Equity Matters initiative was created to bring together businesses and nonprofits committed to diverse and inclusive work environments. Local consortiums, are people standing? Come on now, cooperate. Local consortiums of police brought in specialized implicit bias training. These included police departments in Madison, Middleton, Sun Prairie, and Fitchburg, as well as the Dane County Sheriff's Department. It is hard for me to clap and hold my notes, I'm realizing. So I'm going to do this one clap, and you're going to join me to make the noise. Okay. 
NNSD launched the Behavioral Education Plan, which aims to keep youth, and particularly youth of color, in schools and reduce suspensions and expulsions. NNSD also launched their Community Schools Initiative to expand resources to underserved communities, students, and their families. The Young, Gifted, and Black Coalition emerged as leaders of peaceful protests, which included supporting one of the largest student-led walkouts in recent history in Madison. The co yes, I'm keeping going, though. <laughs> the coalition advanced transformative ideas about community policing and highlighted the over-policing of predominantly African-American communities. The Justified Anger Coalition released its strategic framework. This included specific recommendations from members of the African-American community on how to achieve racial equity in Dane County. The City of Madison implemented the Ban the Box Initiative to remove questions regarding criminal background from city job applications. This ensures that hiring decisions are based on relevant work qualifications. MMSD adopted a policy banning Native American sports mascots from their schools. Dane County expanded the driver's license recovery program to ensure that transportation is not a barrier for low-income people to access employment. The City of Madison Parks Division began offering employment exams in Spanish. United Way of Dane County expanded the hire initiative to specifically target family-supporting employment for people of color. Downtown Rotary invested in a large impact project to help member organizations increase diversity and equity in employment, and 12 local businesses and organizations have signed on to participate. Dane County commissioned a racial equity report by the Center for Social Inclusion that was released last month and includes specific recommendations and benchmarks on how to move forward. The community came together to successfully block the expansion of the Dane County Jail, an effort led by the No New Jail Coalition and YGB's Free the 350. The Dane County Board passed comprehensive jail reform. This called for eliminating solitary confinement, drastically reducing racial disparities in the jail through alternatives to incarceration, and keeping those with mental health challenges out of the jail. The Dane County Board created three community work groups to develop changes to the jail. Their recommendations were reported to the community last week. A community court was piloted in the South Madison neighborhood to keep young adults ages 17 to 25 out of the criminal justice system. The Madison City Council convened hundreds of people from communities of color, survivors of domestic violence, immigrants, LGBTQ community members, as well as city staff to weigh in on the benefits and drawbacks of body-worn video cameras for the police. Time Bank, YWCA, Madison Police, and Madison Municipal Court launched a restorative justice initiative which will allow youth ages 12 to 16 to avoid a criminal record by choosing to go through restorative justice instead of to court, funded through Dane County. State legislators introduced a bipartisan bill to return 17-year-olds to the juvenile justice system. And today, the YWCA is hosting a sold-out racial justice summit where over 575 people are present to figure out how to build the beloved community together, which means you should all be standing. Obviously, there is much more work to be done, and we want to balance appropriate celebration with appropriate concern for all that we have not yet done, but it's been a pretty productive year. So look around the room. Thank you, each of you, for your participation in the things that have moved forward. Thank each other. This is a room full of people who are committed to change. And again, this is not a comprehensive list, so we will ask you to tweet other contributions that you have made or that other people have made from the moment to the movement to YWCA M2M moment to movement. Please share with us other things that didn't make our list that should be read by everybody else. Meanwhile, in addition to participating in many of the things on that list, the YWCA has also been busy over the last year. So in addition to those items, YWCA has continued to work to diversify our own staff and our leadership team reaching 51% staff of color and 40% directors of color. We have reviewed and adapted all of our internal policies using a racial equity lens. We have identified expectations for culturally competent behavior. And I'm just going to say there are no right words. So for those of you who don't like cultural competence, okay. 
That's the one we're using today. <laughs> we have identified expectations for culturally competent behavior and evaluate every staff member on those competencies. We launched the YWeb Career Academy with our partner, Adorable IO, to help women and people of color attain jobs in the tech industry. And the YWCA advocacy team began tracking state, city, county, school board, and local government legislation and policies to provide input and speak for or against proposed legislation and policy changes that impact our clients and our community. We also alerted YWCA supporters, like yourselves, about what was happening and how you could make a personal difference. To join our advocacy network, visit our website at ywcamadison.org. If you are moved by our leadership and you want to help the YWCA grow capacity, you will, of course, find a pledge envelope in your folder. We would really appreciate contributions. We understand that many of you really invested already to be here today, and we appreciate that. If you are able to consider further support, you can give online through your smartphone or, or through the envelope, and there will be some people to collect those at the door on the way out. Last year, after John Powell's speech, we heard resounding interest from everyone here in learning more about the notion of unconscious and implicit bias. Because of this feedback, as well as the general context of the nation and our community, we went looking for people who could speak, speak deeply about implicit bias with clear racial equity frame, and we were fortunate to find the Perception Institute. The Perception Institute is a consortium of researchers, advocates, and strategists who use cutting-edge mind science research to reduce discrimination and other harms linked to race, gender, and other identity differences. They work in areas where bias has the most profound impact, such as education, healthcare, law enforcement, and civil justice, and in the workplace. The Perception Institute crafts real-world solutions for everyday relationships by turning research into remedies. We will start the morning hearing from Ms. Godsell. She will help us understand the mind science behind implicit bias. In addition to her role with the Perception Institute, she is the Eleanor Bontecoup Professor of Law at Seton Hall University Law School. She is former assistant U.S. attorney, and her research focuses on applying insights from the mind sciences to race, law, and public policy. Ms. Godsell was co-editor for Awakening from the Dream, Civil Rights Under Siege, and the New Struggle for Equal Justice. Mayor Bill de Blasio recently appointed Ms. Godsell as chair of the Rent Guidelines Board for the City of New York. And Ms. Godsell is a UW graduate and grew up in Wisconsin. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Rachel Godsell from the Perception Institute. So good morning. After hearing the list of all the extraordinary work that's been done in Dane County and in Wisconsin, um, it would be in some ways easy to think You've all done everything that we are hoping and working with community groups and advocacy organizations and social justice organizations across the country. And it is, it is a truly amazing set of accomplishments uh, that's been occurring in Madison. But I am a hometown girl, and I'm actually from Milwaukee. And when I hear about what's happening in Milwaukee, when I hear about what's happening in Madison, when I come home, when I talk to my mom who works for SEIU and does low-wage worker work, and when I talk to my dad, who's a, a roofer and works in communities of color, and when I see from their perspective and from the perspective of my friends here what still continues to happen, it, it, it breaks my heart, I have to say, because I think from its, you know, for, for almost a century, Wisconsin has been the inception for progressive ideas, but Wisconsin has also been the source of some of the most harmful ideas that have emanated to Washington in the past 50 years. And everyone in this room knows this better than I do. And so what that means is there's potential for Wisconsin, as this wonderful summit suggests, to be a place from which a moment transforms into a movement. Because Wisconsin is a place that, in a sense, sets paths forward and brings people into new possible realms. And so it is really exciting. It is really an honor to be here in Wisconsin talking with all of you in light of your accomplishments, but in light of the clear urgency that everyone in this room feels uh, to move forward. So why now? Again, everyone in this room knows why now. 
Um, with, with Perception, we, we spent the summer working with community groups in Mississippi, in New Orleans, in Detroit, in Denver. And I will say, in my 22 years of doing civil rights work, I have never, never seen such pain. I have never seen such a sense of feeling under siege, a feeling as though we're in a place that we can't imagine that we would be in, given where we thought we'd be in 2008. At multiple community meetings where we spent time with, with, uh, with families, mothers said over and over again in different rooms in different parts of the country, I feel as though I should not have brought my son into this world given what he faces. What have we done for mothers to feel that way? And what do we need to do for that to change? So I think we all know why now. I think we all know that. This room knows that. But as this conversation happening here suggests, and I completely agree that this does seem to be a moment in which conversations are happening, in which urgency is felt about issues of race and issues of gender and issues of difference and the way difference affects people's outcomes and literally likelihood of living a full life in a way that I've never seen in 22 years. So along with the unique nature of the pain and the grief, I think there is finally urgency in the institutions in this country that need to feel urgency. So I spent yesterday with police officers and law enforcement uh, in, in Dane County, and there was urgency in that room. There was urgency in that room. That was, there was a feeling from them, we feel as though we are assumed to be Ferguson. I know the tragedies that have occurred here. We, we don't want to be those people. We don't want to be seen as those people. We, are, we, you know, we joined the, serve, the, 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 the profession to serve, and people don't experience us that way. What can we do to change? And so the next question is, why us? Why the Perception Institute? What do we bring? Well, John Powell, in a sense, is what brought us here today to you, and John Powell is why we exist. In 2008, John Powell recognized in that, in some sense, moment of hope that we all felt when Barack Obama was elected president, that there were smoldering seeds of threat, smoldering seeds of resentment, smoldering seeds that suggested to him that race could be a source of enormous strife, tension, and an inhibition of the kind of progress that many of us thought would be made with the election of Barack Obama as president. And I, th I think we would all agree he was right. And what John also identified in 2008 was that there was the potential for the mind sciences to help bring us forward into a different conversation, that the mind sciences could offer a way to prevent the polarization that seems to inevitably occur whenever we have a racial moment. We have a racial moment, there's a tragedy, and for, for that moment, there is universal grief. Trayvon Martin is killed, and for a moment, as a country, we come together with sorrow. And then very shortly, that moment ends, and the divide begins. And John Powell's insight in 2008, which obviously preceded this string of deaths that we've now seen. John Powell's insight in 2008 is that the mind sciences, understanding how our brains operate, might be a way to prevent that polarization from creating stasis or continued tragedy. And his theory for that was that the mind sciences help provide us with a way to understand how what seems like a completely insolvable paradox can be understood. And that paradox is the vast majority of people in this country of all races and ethnicities think that racism is wrong. Now, there are an eight or nine percent of people who absolutely don't, who are committed to the idea of white supremacy and they spend all of their time on the Internet. And so we see way too much of their thoughts and they loom far too large in our consciousness. So we know that percentage exists. But the majority of people think that being racist is more immoral than being a drunk driver and second only to being a pedophile. So if we wonder why do white people respond the way we do, 
when the word racism comes up or when it is suggested in some way that we might be racist? Because most white people do think, if I am racist, I am an immoral person. And no one wants to be an immoral person. So that's a conversation dead stop. It's a conversation dead stop. On the other hand, of course, you have people of color saying, well, if all of you aren't racist, why are we where we are? <laughs> so either the white people are lying and just saying what they think needs to be said, or do they think we're somehow not experiencing what we're experiencing? Well, I think we're beyond that point, right? We're beyond that point. The data is too strong. But so the question is, how can, how can these two things be true? Well, the mind sciences tell us how these things can be true. And this is where understanding how our brain works gives us an enormous amount of power to bring this conversation forward outside of the walls of this room where everyone is gathered with shared urgency to address these issues and to keep broadening the coalition. So the, with the, not as much time as I know I would always like, and you, someone's going to have to shut me up at some point, um, with the bit of time I have this morning and then later in the breakout, what I'd like to do is share a little bit about each of the phenomena within the mind sciences that Perception Institute has concluded are crucial for broadening that coalition, for doing this work with the many more people who don't want to be that racist, who don't want their institutions to fail in their mission to provide health care, who don't want their police officers to be engaging in excessive use of force, who don't want their teachers to be uh, disciplining and expelling and suspending young people of color at rates that far exceed anything they've ever done. They don't want their institutions to do that, but you know what? They don't know how. Stop being biased. Okay, tell me how. And that's what's amazing about the work that's being done here is we're bringing, many of us, and I'm, I'm not a social psychologist. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm a law professor. But by working collaboratively with the researchers who are part of our consortium, any question any of you have about what we don't yet know, what we're not yet sharing, please share with us. You know, Rachel or Alexis at perception.org. Share those questions with us because what we'll do is we'll put a team together and we'll help identify the empirically based responses to the questions of urgency that we all have. Okay, so how do we do this? First of all, we do have to understand briefly, and Alexis will talk more about this, there is a group of powerful people who, of course, are holding on to their privilege and trying to hold on to their dominance with every bit of their economic and political strength, and that's racial threat. So that is a group in this country, and we know they exist, and we know the harm they can do. And sometimes you've got the economic threat, those are corporate political interests, you've got political threat, fear of losing political power. We see that operating in Wisconsin, certainly. And then we have the symbolic threat. And this is what leads to Dylan Roof. He is a pawn in this world of racial threat, where as a single individual, troubled individual on the margins of society, he takes ideas of white supremacy to their tragic conclusions. So we know we have to grapple with them. And what your community is doing by creating a mechanism for community engagement, by bringing civic leaders together across sector, is you are creating the potential to be the kind of community that doesn't, as Hazleton, Pennsylvania did, respond to changing demographics with the most anti-immigration legislation in the nation. So one of these pictures is Hazleton, Pennsylvania. The other is a town in Pennsylvania that is virtually identical demographically, but instead of polarizing, they came together and they created a mechanism for mass celebration. They brought their communities together, and the way that happened was civic engagement, bringing leaders from all parts of society together in leading the community forward. In Hazleton, white people didn't have conversations with the Latino population who'd moved in, except perhaps at a Walmart. That's what they said. In Hazleton, people talk together across leadership of organizations like the YWCA. So this work that you're doing, this work is, is this, this, this is the work to be done to take a moment, a moment into a movement. So what's the impediment? This is where, and please keep this up. <laughs> I need this one up. This is the moment where we start to experience how it can be that people's 
genuinely believed non-racist conscious values can nonetheless translate into behaviors and actions that are completely opposite of those values. Because that does seem perplexing. Come on, really? It's got to be the line thing. That has to be the answer. But, it's, but I will posit, and we will see if you're convinced at the end, that there is a way for this to be true. So everyone, I need all 600 of you to together work with me. Everyone willing? All right. Some of you probably have done this before, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. What I would like is for each of us, and I'll do it with you too, to state the color of the text. Ready? Okay, I'll practice. Okay, louder, more energy. Blue. Red. Red. Green. Green. Black. Green. Red. Okay. So we had a breakdown, right? We, we, we had a breakdown. And the breakdown, huh, interesting. We were doing great. We got really energetic. So we got the blue, red, green, black, green. And the color of the text is black, right? But almost everybody here said what? Red. Why did we say red? Because it said red, right? It said red. And we have all been trained since we were little kids to read the word that's on the screen. If I did this in Greek letters... We would have gotten it right all along. It wouldn't have mattered what the word said, right? Except for the four people who speak Greek, and they would have screwed up the, the, uh, the exercise. I've had that happen, actually, which is why I quit using the Greek words. Um, so we just experienced our automatic brains overcoming our executive brains. We experienced the automaticity that helps us to understand how conscious anti-racism can be absolutely swamped by the automatic stereotypes and hostilities and, you know, all the toxic muck that we've been bombarded with for our entire lives in this culture. We just experienced that in a very innocuous way. I don't think any of us would say we don't want to know how to read something on a screen, right? We're all pretty happy we can do that. That's good. But the experience of having your executive brain swamped by the power of your unconscious brain sets the seeds for understanding implicit bias. So what I'll do now is show us something hopeful, which is our conscious brains can prevail. So ready to do this with me one more time? Concentrating? All right, let's go. Blue, We did it. But did everyone notice that we, I don't know about you, I literally have done this probably 1,500 times by now, and I have to concentrate. And you'll note we kind of had a little pause before each word because we wanted to make sure we got it right. This is the beginning. This is our brain in action. As I'm sure John Powell told all of you who were here last year, our conscious brains can process 40 bits of information per minute. Our unconscious brains, 11 million. Our unconscious brains are astounding. We do this incredible work unconsciously, automatically, by osmosis, of taking our world and sorting it into categories to make sense of it. There's a really interesting metaphor. How many of you have heard that babies are born blind? Any of you heard that? The mothers in the room, we've all heard this. Fathers, parents. So many people say babies are born blind. Well, it's not actually true the way that we hear that. It's not that their eyes don't work. It's that they see colors, shapes, images, but they don't have any categories in their brain to organize the information. So functionally, they're blind because they're not seeing. They don't know what they're seeing. It's just stuff. But soon, of course they learn the face of their primary caregiver. That face is the beginning of seeing. That's their first category. And so that's what we do throughout our entire lives is as new stimuli comes into our orbit, 
we create a category for it and we store that and the minute we've done that it becomes part of our automatic brain it's how we function and we're able to fill in missing information we're able to make quick leaps and all of that is perfectly functional adaptable and necessary so that we're not literally paralyzed by having to try and make sense of all the colors that I'm seeing in this room I'm just seeing I'm seeing lots of people but if I had to think about each of you individually, I would have to stop talking because I couldn't obviously talk and see each of you and try and figure out, you know, the colors and the different images and the hair and the faces and the glasses and the not glasses. There's so much going on, but our brain just does this work for us. So how is the, this weird color test and the operation of the brain relevant to race and ethnicity? Well, we put people into categories too, right? And we have to. We have to know the category of toddler or baby as contrasted to adult, as contrasted to senior. We have to know those categories. I'm a New Yorker now, not a Wisconsinite anymore. And so I have to know if someone's moving toward the subway platform, there's one category, toddler, who if that small person is moving toward the subway category, it is my duty to reach out and pick that person up and bring them back to safety. If an adult is doing this, which adults in New York do all the time, leaning over, looming over the subway, if I were to go and pull that person back, <laughs> that's assault, right? <laughs> so, so I need to know that category. But of course, there are categories and stereotypes and associations that are linked to race, to gender, to ethnicity, to ability, to sexual orientation, to many of the other categories into which we fit and into which we are labeled that have a far different effect than simply adult, child, save you from the subway, let you make your own decisions and don't get arrested for assault. And I'll begin with a very old set of stereotypes and associations because it's interesting to go back a little bit and realize how long held stereotypes that dehumanize, that make assumptions about groups of people have existed. So this image you have before you is a 19th century picture uh, contrasting Irish Catholic women with English women. My name probably doesn't tell you that I'm Irish, but I am. Uh, I gave a presentation to some judges once and one of the judges came up to me and said, I don't believe you're Irish, you're clearly Jewish, and I don't think you're a lawyer, you're a social worker. <laughs> so I invited him to come with me to Michigan Law School to see my transcript and to county court to see my relatives, but he declined. Um, so in the 19th century, as an Irish Catholic woman, I would be assumed to be uneducable, savage, promiscuous, and drunk. That's who I was. That's how I was seen. The Irish Catholic thing now is kind of a cute joke on St. Patrick's Day, right? It's, it has no meaning in my life. Now, to an audience other than this one, some people might be thinking, and some people here might be thinking as well, well, why doesn't everyone else just do what the Irish did? Probably everyone here knows the answer. What did the Irish do? Anyone? We became white. We cease to be the race of the Irish as contrasted to the race of the Germans and the race of the French and the race of the Swedes, and we all became white. That is not, as everyone in this room knows, what has happened with multiple other racial and ethnic groups in this country. And I think we know it won't. And I think at this stage, I don't think people want that. I don't think what people are looking for is for everyone to become white. In fact, I think that's very much what we don't think ought to be forced to happen for people to have their equal dignity respected. But what we know is the image of, for example, a poor mother with her children, which at one time evoked immense empathy and concern when the image of a poor mother single with her children was that, which resulted in the safety net of the New Deal. Now, this image of a poor woman with her children who's white, by pure numerics, 
This is still the most numerous group of poor women with children in this country, 19 million. But is this the image this country has of poor women with children? And do we give this image, this category of poor women with children who are single empathy? No. The image we now have is this woman with her children. Does everyone in this room think this woman with her children deserves the same empathy and support and respect that the other picture deserved? Of course we do. But does this country think that this woman and her children deserve the same empathy and support and respect? No. And is it manifested in our policies? Yes. So we have another group, Muslims and Arab Americans, who are seen in ways that lead to an open hostility. Forget implicit bias. There is open willingness to talk about this group that this country feels completely comfortable saying on television. And these are folks in our community who deserve our empathy and our respect and our protection. Then we have Latinos who, in a sense, are just absent from the media with the exception of discussions of immigration. You know, do we see these images, my friends in my community, on television, in the newspaper, on, on TV shows with regularity? It's as though they're gone. They're not there. So for African-Americans, we have a set of negative associations, a set of negative stereotypes that Alexis will talk about that are perpetuated in the culture and the media. For Latinos, we just don't see much except in the context of immigration. What about Native Americans? What about Native Americans? Huh? And why are they so worried about this whole, like, icon thing? You know, the fighting Irish are fine. Well, no. With Native Americans completely invisible virtually in the country's national narrative, and yet when a research study was done to find out whether the fighting Sioux had an effect on how a college student would feel in working with someone who was identified as Native American, it did. Those stereotypes continue to be real, and we don't see this picture. You know, we don't see pictures of folks who are Native American. We don't hear stories about their accomplishments, struggles, and life experiences. We just don't. Invisible. Asian Americans, the model minority myth, right? There's this assumption that if you're Native American, I'm sorry, if you're Asian American, as our friend Jerry Kong would say, if you were standing up here, uh, if you see me and you assume perfect math score on my SAT, black belt in martial arts, and I played violin at Carnegie Hall when I was five. <laughs> and then Jerry will say, two of those are actually true. <laughs> that being said, Jerry did a study, Jerry Kong did a study of whether or not people listening to depositions of lawyers, one, one group of whom thought the lawyer was the person on the left, one group of whom thought the lawyer was the person on the right. And interestingly, despite it being the same words, the people who thought, thought the lawyer was Sung Chang didn't think he was strong and assertive enough, didn't think he was warm enough, didn't think he would protect their interests adequately. Where do those come from? So having associations and attributes linked to your identity group is circumscribing, even if in some sense they're seen as positive. And in Wisconsin, we know the Hmong community has a lot of struggles that as Asian Americans, they're not supposed to have. So implicit bias is the automatic association of traits and attributes to a group that we don't know we have, or even that we consciously reject. And this has power. This is an example of a study that was done in law firms. Same memo. Half of the people thought had a picture of the associate from NYU, thought he was white. Half thought the associate from NYU thought he was black. So interesting that the white guy who wrote the memo, uh, generally good writer, has potential, and not too many of his spelling and grammatical errors were found. He's fine. Let's keep him on. The people who thought that this associate was black needs a lot of work, can't believe he went to NYU. And this group of partners who saw this identical memo found twice as many of the intentionally embedded grammatical and spelling errors. They read that memo once they saw that first typo with an eagle eye. Doctors, do doctors want to not treat patients of color? No. But when doctors were given a list of symptoms and told this is a diagnostic and treatment test, 
the doctors who had strong, implicit bias against African Americans, they all had self-reported egalitarian attitudes, every single one of them. But the doctors who had implicit bias against African Americans could diagnose the heart condition, but they were significantly less likely to actually recommend the necessary treatment of thrombolosis to treat the condition. And if you don't get the thrombolosis, you're more likely to need surgery. And as Shaquille puts in his phenomenal book, which I highly recommend to you, there was a study done of actual doctors that showed this, in fact, happens in reality. So doctors, but here's the good news from this study, and this is why all of this work has hope. There was a small cohort in this doctor study who had embedded in somewhere in the instructions in a very, you know, subtle way. They weren't whacked over the head with it, but embedded in the, in the instructions was race can sometimes play a role in treatment and recommendations, and that group of doctors, regardless of their implicit bias, self-corrected and gave the appropriate treatment. So we can, just like we were able to slow down and state the color of the text, we can override our biases and live and behave according to our conscious values. But in order to do that, we need to know that we need to do that. So implicit bias has been shown to impact a whole set of real-world behaviors. And I flipped through that very quickly, and we're going to share the PowerPoints because I want to move to two other topics really quickly. Implicit bias is not only cognitive. It is not only decision-making linked. It is also behavioral. So people who have implicit bias, when they're interacting with someone of another race or ethnicity, are more apt to stand further away, to avert eye contact, to appear defensive. And we all feel that. So if a doctor comes into a patient room and doesn't look at the patient with warmth and concern, how likely is that patient going to be to share all of her conditions that are sensitive, that are personal? If a teacher doesn't give eye contact to some children, every child in that room is going to notice that. Every child in that room. So we have to be aware of the behavioral effects of implicit bias and not just the decisions. I'm going to move quickly to solutions, and I hate to do this. There are two strands of research that actually can help us do this work. One is bias reduction, and this work is emanating out of the University of Wisconsin's social psychology lab by the genius Patricia Devine, who we all bow down to, and it's really powerful work. And in, this, in the longer uh, discussion that I have, I'll talk about how those different steps work, and they're powerful, and they're important, and we should all be engaged in them. But for institutions, we can't presume that bias reduction is going to happen fast enough to make sure that people aren't harmed. So for that, we have to go to the research on what, I, what we call bias override. We have to accept that there are going to be implicit biases, and we have to figure out to, how to prevent those bias, biases from implementing into policies, systems, and practices by setting out alternative modes of behavior that are part of the job and train people incessantly, and it can be done. Final two topics. The bias lens is important. We have to be aware of it, but we also have to be aware that there are two other phenomena that if we just focus on bias also have real-world harm. Racial anxiety and stereotype threat. Racial anxiety is experienced by both people of color and whites before or during interracial interactions, and it's experienced differently, though its effects are very similar. For people of color, not surprisingly, given everything we've talked about and everything people in this room have experienced, there is the concern of being subject to discrimination or bias. And that concern causes cortisol levels to go up, heart rates to go up, that stress is damaging on health, and that stress can make an interaction very difficult and often challenging for the person who's experiencing it. White people, most of us don't know that we experience racial anxiety. We certainly don't have a name for it. But we may realize that when we're in an interaction with a person of color, we're kind of nervous that we're going to say something dumb. And we're kind of worried that we're going to do something that's going to make us seem racist. And we don't want to be that immoral racist person. That shuts our brain down, and we actually are more likely to say really stupid things. So if you're a person of color and you've had an interaction with a white person who kind of is looking at you strangely and says something really inane, it's likely because we're experiencing racial anxiety that we don't know how to control. And 
part of our job is to do more racial navigation so that burden isn't all on people of color to do that work. We have to do that work. And it can't be just our starting to cry. Right? We have a big clap for no more, no more white tears. Like, that, you know, cry at home. <laughs> cry at home if you want to. I, I certainly have cried over issues of revolving race, as we all should in some sense. But I'm not going to put my burden on someone else and make them make me feel better. That is not the job of people of color, and we've made it the job of people of color way too long. So we need to do that navigation work because what happens when a white person is experiencing racial navigation, uh, racial anxiety is it actually looks remarkably like bias. We don't look at people. We stand further away. We actually may try and avoid the contact altogether. And guess what that seems like? Bias. So just making white people feel guilty and say, you, you know, you're, you're either racist, you're implicitly biased, you're this, you're that, it may all be true, but it's not the work as institutions we need to do to make the behavior change. And again, the onus should be on us. But recognizing the phenomena for people who are trying to move this movement beyond these walls is really important. And finally, and again, there are solutions to this, talk about it in the breakout session. Um, finally, stereotype threat. Five minutes wrap up. Oh, I'm so pleased that I only have, that I actually have five minutes. Good, yay me. Stereotype threat. <laughs> Alexis is laughing at me. <laughs> Stereotype threat. This is a powerful concept that, are some in the room educators? Educators? So within education, this is a, uh, this is a concept that's been known for quite a long time. And it's the f concern about confirming a negative image or stereotype about your identity group. Girls and women in math and science, a girl who's asked to check her gender before a difficult math test will do less well on that test, documented over and over again. Assumptions about, and interestingly, if you're an Asian American girl, if you check your gender less well, if you check your ethnicity, little stereotype lift. So white men, white women check gender, white men lift. White men, Asian Americans, white men down. So we can all be primed to have this anxiety about confirming a negative stereotype. And the reason I have the picture of the race is uh, Jerry Kong, again, who I've worked with on this topic, likened stereotype threat to a headwind in a race that only one person experiences. Everyone else has the wind at their back, and the one person is running into that headwind. So it's not a capacity issue. It's not a preparation issue. It's not a work potential issue, it's in that moment you don't have all of your cognitive capacities available for the task at hand. So this is really important in education. It's really important in the workplace to make sure that every institution does everything possible to de-trigger identity salience within the workplace and the negative associations with gender. If you're the only woman at a tech company, if you're the only woman of color at a tech company, your identity is very salient. You walk into that boardroom and you're asked to do like a lot of calculations off the top of your head. You can do that in your sleep. Much harder when you're stared at by a group of people who are looking at you like this. Now, some people do it, obviously, but do we have to be superhuman to be in the race? Do we have to be superhuman to be in the race? We've always had the exceptionals, and people point to the exceptionals and say, see, she did it. See, he did it. But the white guys don't have to be superhuman. None of us should have to be superhuman, right? None of us should have to be superhuman. But there's also white stereotype threat. And this was conceived of by Phil Atiba Goff, who is a colleague of ours, heads the Center for Police Equity, is a genius. If you watch John Stewart, uh, if you, John, I can't believe I said John Stewart. If you watched The Daily Show with Trevor Noah last night, uh, you saw Phil Atiba Goff, and he was awesome. Um, white stereotype threat is the concern that whites have about confirming the utterly terrifying stereotype for us that we're racist, and it causes some of those same effects. So Phil has studied this in a couple of different areas, but most salient, and here's where I'll end, in the context of policing. In the context of policing. So Phil worked, has worked with many police departments across the country, and his question was with his team, what are the phenomena that are leading to stops and frisks at such disproportionate rates 
And what are the phenomena that are leading to the excessive use of force that are harming so many black men, women, and young people of both genders? What are the, and, and Latinos as well, but particularly black men and boys and young women as well. What are the phenomena? With respect to stops, again, Phil goes in, he does, they give kind of survey instruments to police officers and they compare those survey instruments to the field data. So they're phenomenal studies. You're looking at real world what happened and you're comparing it to what you see in these surveys. And of course there are explicitly prejudiced police officers out there and Phil who's black will hear about it the minute he walks in the door because they'll tell him. And what he found is, not surprisingly, the explicitly biased police officers are the most likely to have crazy numbers of stops and frisks of young black men, boys, and girls as well. They're the most likely. Big surprise, right? Telling us what we already know. Much more surprising is, are his findings on excessive use of force. You would think that explicit bias would be linked to greater use of force against young black men and boys and girls as well. It's not. You've got your little blue line, uh, I'm sorry, orange line when it comes to explicit bias. Maybe it would be implicit bias. They don't know they have these biases, but they do. That wasn't linked to excessive use of force either. Phil found two phenomena to be linked to excessive use of force. I have one up there. One is masculinity anxiety. Right? Everyone's like, okay, yeah, we get that one. Masculinity anxiety. The other is the fear of confirming the stereotype that they're racist. What? Huh? You might be thinking there's silence. There's not the, yo, oh, I get it, it's masculinity anxiety. Phil explains that one as follows. Police officers have two sources of authority, moral and physical. If you are concerned that the person with whom you're interacting doesn't respect your moral authority, and at some level you don't feel you have moral authority over that person, where do you go in that interaction? What other source of authority do you have? You have your fist, you have your baton, and you have your gun. With that, I will end. I look forward to seeing as many of you as possible in the breakout session. Thank you so much. Awesome, Rachel.